Everybody else, if you are, um, have your Bibles with you, a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to take it out. Um, you will be helped greatly this morning if you have it open. So this morning we are in Zephaniah, as was um, read earlier by um, the Blanks family, Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah chapter 3. And uh, before we dive into the text, just want to be real clear what we're doing here this morning. Um, my job, as maybe as much as you would want it to be, is not to get you in the mood for the season, all right? My aim this morning is to not help us uh, feel festive, if you will. You all have the Hallmark Channel to do that, okay? Not my job. My job is to direct our attention this morning to God's Word, to the Bible, and to simply tell you about Jesus, And my hope and my prayer is that by God's grace and through his mercy, that our hearts would be cracked open and that the very God himself, living God, would invade our reality, Um, a life that, you know, yours is like mine, where oftentimes we can feel discouraged and defeated, that we would come here this morning and as we examine the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be inspired and filled with hope, a hope um, that is endless, and that nobody can take from us. That's, that's our job, is to just direct our attention to Jesus Christ this morning. And so we're using the, the minor prophet Zephaniah um, to help us um, towards that end. And so I'm going to read the text for us again, and then I'll, I'll pray, and we will we'll dive in. So this is Zephaniah chapter 3, and I'm going to read just vo- verses 14 uh, to 17. This is God's word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Church, let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we come before you this morning, and as we draw our attention to your word, Lord, we ask that you would um, do what we ask you to do every single week, Lord. Would you take this word, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, would you simply write it on our hearts as your people, and would you use it to form us into the people that you've called us to be, Lord? Fill us as your people um, with a joy that, is, uh, that, can co- that comes only from uh, another source, something outside of us, Lord. And so I pray that you would fill us this morning, that you would guide us in your truth. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, a simple question this morning to start off. What is your, I know you got one, what is your favorite Christmas song? What is your favorite Christmas song? Just think for a minute. Do you have one? Do you have a favorite Christmas song? You should. In my home, we don't just have a favorite Christmas song. We have a favorite Christmas album, an entire album at our house that ever after after Thanksgiving, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, just plays on repeat over and over and over again. And it's a favorite album in my house because growing up as a child, it was exactly what my parents did. And and the album is is by an artist that is um, probably many of you won't know. Okay, I don't know him outside of this album. His name is Roger Whitaker. Anybody ever heard of that name before? Anybody know Roger Whitaker? A few hands in the house? Okay, Roger Whitaker has the best Christmas album 
think it was made in 1978. It is remarkable. Now, Roger Whitaker is, um, I think he's a British, maybe folk pop singer who's, who's known really sort of for two things. One is his rich baritone voice. The second thing that makes Roger Whitaker so phenomenal is his ability to whistle like you've never heard before. All right. In fact, on his Christmas album, he has one song that is just strictly him whistling nonstop. It's beautiful. It's glorious. In fact, I think it was the reason why it was my dad's favorite Christmas album is because he couldn't, while he couldn't carry a tune, my dad could whistle with the best of them. Okay. Roger Whitaker's Christmas album is hands down my favorite my favorite Christmas album. Well, this album, this artist, while he is probably little known, um, he has a fantastic album. You should all just Google when you go home. Would you please do that, okay? Um, today, our attention is going to be directed to, to the prophet, the minor prophet, Zephaniah, who is himself little known. My, my guess is that many of you today, maybe sitting here, maybe have never heard a message preached out of the book of Zephaniah. Maybe few of us in here could tell you much about who Zephaniah was or what he wrote about. But in these three short chapters, this minor prophet, we discover what I hope and pray will become for you your favorite Christmas song. The, what we read here and Zephaniah chapter 3 is one of the most remarkable things that we can possibly, possibly consider. And we will consider it together. It is, by all accounts, a beautiful, it reveals to us, we will discover together a beautiful, beautiful song. A song like no song has ever been sung. And it's a song like you and I were designed to hear. It's an amazing, amazing song. And it points us in that direction. This morning, as we look at this text in Zephaniah chapter three, we will discover that the God of joy makes you and me a, for, for you and me, a miserable people. It makes joy a endless possibility. That's what we'll see this morning together. So as we, just, as we go through this text, we'll start in verse 14. I'm just going to make a couple of points. The first one I want to show you is we'll discover together the surprising possibility of total joy. Here in Zephaniah 3, we discover the surprising possibility of total joy joy. Zephaniah was a prophet who, who prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Maybe you're familiar with King Josiah. He was a really special king in the history of God's people. He, he led Judah specifically through a season of reform. About 80 years before his reign, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes to the north were, were captured by the Assyrian um, invaders and they were taken to captivity. And, and there was, this ultimately was the act of judgment on God's people, judgment to God's people because of their sin and their rebellion against him. And the southern two tribes, the tribes of Judah, where, where Josiah was king, apparently had not learned their lesson. And you would think that they would see the, the ten northern tribes carried off as a result of their sin and because of their rebellion. And you would think, you would hope that they would learn their lesson. But rather, they sunk deeper and deeper into things like idolatry and absolute evil rebelling against their God. Uh, one of the kings, Manasseh in particular, was an evil king himself. This was several kings before Josiah. 
And, and he rebuilt the high places, altars to Baal. He would even build places within the temple to be dedicated for idolatry and worshiping of foreign gods. Josiah would become a king eventually, um, several kings after Manasseh, and he would become a king at the age of eight. Josiah reigned for 31 years and listen to what is said about him. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is Josiah. And he walked in, in all the ways of David, his father. Josiah was a good king. One of the things that made him, his reign, his, his act of reformation um, so wonderful was that in the 18th year of his reign, uh, the priest, uh, the priest who was serving at that time, Hilkiah, went into the temple and he discovered God's word. He discovered God's word. And he, he brought God's word, discovered there in the temple, back to Josiah. And when he read it to King Josiah, Josiah's response was he was broken. He, he tears his clothes and he humbles himself before God simply at the reading of God's word. From there, he would lead reformation throughout God's people. He, he would renew the covenant between God and his people. He, he would take all the vessels to these foreign gods and he would tear them down. He would, he would burn them in fields. He would overthrow the idolatrous priests. He, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. And he reinstated reinstated the Passover. There it is, the Passover feast. So he brings the practices that God's people were called to do back in. And you know what? He has this revolutionary idea. This is going to sound really revolutionary. Basically what Josiah does through his reign is he leads reformation to God's people by simply saying this, hey guys, I got a good idea. Let's do what this book says. <laughs> that was the secret to Josiah's reformation simply leading God's people to be faithful to God's word. And it was really a unique time in the land of Judah. However, as we read through the book of Zephaniah, we will see that the sin in the land, the rebellion in the midst of the people was so significant. It was so significant. And Josiah was not saying, hey, let's come up with some new techniques, some great ideas, some slick tricks. Rather, he was just saying, let's return to, to fidelity to God's word. And Zephaniah would team up with Josiah and call God's people together to a different way of living. Reform in the land required a prophet who was faithful to God, a priest, Hilkiah, who was faithful to God, and a king, Josiah, who was faithful to God. And they had to be faithful to God, and they had to have a bold message, a bold message, a message that potentially would be resisted and rejected by God's people. Reformation among God's people requires speaking boldly a message that God has given to us. And, and ultimately, the, the reformation that Josiah wanted to bring about was, was due to, to his desire to please the Lord, not to please the ears of the people around him, but ultimately to please God himself. And so as you read through the book of Zephaniah, you will see that this section that we enter in, chapter three, really is surprising, it's very surprising. If you were to just sit down and read these three chapters through, you would be startled as you, as you get into chapter three. The entire tone of the book completely changes. Zephaniah throughout his book warns 
God's people more than any other prophet of what is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, Zephaniah would say over and over and over again. And as he describes in chapters one and two what this day of the Lord will be like, listen to some of the words that he uses. He says that it will sweep away. There'll come a day when, when man and beast will be swept away. A day of wrath, distress, and anguish, ruin, and devastation. As he, speaks, as he speaks and serves as God's voice, he says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Speaking of Jerusalem, he says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Rejected. They, they rejected God for far too long. And as the, you read the first couple of chapters of Zephaniah, you begin to see that he is prophesying in a day that is sort of covered and steeped in darkness. And his, his proclamation, his pronouncement to God's people is primarily in the first two and a half chapters is a, is a pronouncement of judgment filled with warning after warning, simply saying judgment is on his way. And this is why, as we get into chapter three, we are so startled how the tone of the book completely changes because the reality is the day of the Lord is like a two-sided coin. The coming day of the Lord that, that Zephaniah prophesies about is like a coin that has two sides. While yes, judgment is on one side, judgment for the people of God who have rejected God, they deserve judgment. Then the other side, there is the side of joy. So the day of the Lord is a coin with two sides, judgment on one side and joy that we will discover here in chapter three lies on the other side. The day of the Lord is very different for those he describes in chapter two, verse three, who seek the Lord, all who humble themselves in the land and who do what is just and seek righteousness and who seek humility. For them, the day of the Lord has a very different meaning. And they will have a very different experience when it comes. And this verse, chapter two, verse three, seems to be sort of the main point of why Zephaniah is writing. Ultimately, as we read through his book, we discover words of judgment and promises of joy. And the whole reason why he is proclaiming these words of judgment and offering these promises of joy is to, to persuade God's people to seek God to turn to him, to, to humble themselves, to turn from their evil, wicked ways and to find refuge in God himself. So warnings of judgment and promises of joy. As we, just, as we read through this, it's, it's surprising the language, how the language just completely turns. There's another reason why this is so surprising. What's so surprising about Zephaniah and the, the words that we discover here in chapter three is that this promise for joy is not just specifically for the people of Judah. The, the promise that he is offering the people is not exclusively for those who are the nation of Israel. If you were to just glance back into verse nine of chapter three, it says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush. From beyond the rivers of the land of Cush, and Cush would have represented in biblical times, and these times it would have represented Ethiopia or Sudan. And so the, the, the imagery is here is as far as these people could even think. God's promises of joy were accessible to the people who were the furthest away from him. Even beyond their, their, their group, beyond their, their, their clique, the people who they thought the promises of joy were exclusively for. This, this is surprising that God, he says later in verse 20, that it will be, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. That God is doing something in the day and as he is calling people to turn from their sin towards him to seek him with, with all of their heart, his heart is ultimately for all of the peoples of the earth. And what he is about to do will bring blessing and restoration. It will be offered to everyone on the earth. And this is something that oftentimes we can forget. We can forget that God is doing a thing in and through his people to bear witness to his goodness and his greatness, his grace and his mercy for all peoples. It's one of the reasons why here at Parkview, we make such a big deal about making disciples, not just of those in our midst, not just those within these walls, but that God has saved us, he's rescued us, he has redeemed us, and he has called us and sent us out to be a blessing to the nations, to the people in our community who are far from God, to those who think there's no way God could reach me. There's no way God could love me. He has given us grace and called you and me as recipients of his grace to be good stewards of his grace. And the way we are good stewards of his grace is we freely share, we freely give, we proclaim God's grace to those who are as far away from him as they can even imagine in the land of Cush. God has redeemed us and called us a people that we might represent him, bear witness to him, to everyone in the land. This is surprising for these people. This is surprising. Joy is possible. Verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. It says that we are to, it's, we are, our joy is commanded. We are commanded, it says in verse 14, to sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Four different expressions. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult. The joy that God has called us, has promised us to, is a joy that cannot be contained, nor should it be. For the person who has received the endless joy that God has to offer, there is an inability to sort of keep our mouth shut about it. The scripture says, sing out, shout, rejoice, exult, and it's a command. As you have received God's grace and his mercy, we are not to be the type of people who walk away with our lips sealed, but we are to boldly proclaim. And this joy is, is a joy that is not of our own doing, but rather it is a joy that has been done for us 
is a joy that, that comes from outside of us and is offered to us, not because of our own merit. Our merit, what we deserve ultimately is God's punishment, his wrath. That's what our sins require. That's what they deserve. But what's offered to us is grace. And it's a joy that is to exceed beyond anything that we can even imagine. We're not called here to sort of suck it up, to just pull it together, to pencil on a smile. This joy is a joy that can't be contained and it comes from another source. And on the surface, you would think to yourself, it's a joy that simply seems unexplainable. Well, as we continue to read through chapter uh, in verses 15, 16, and 17, we'll see that there is great grounds. In fact, point two, there are sufficient grounds for our joy. This joy doesn't just sort of, it's not something we have to just manufacture, okay? It gives us in the next couple of verses reasons why we can have joy. The first is this. Our joy, it says, their, their joy in Judah was related to their identity, to who they simply were says, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Sorry, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Three different phrases talking about three different terms used to identify God's people. Zion, Jerusalem, and Israel. Two of these are geographic, Zion and Jerusalem. One is ethnic, Israel. But each of these would point God's people to a significant period of time when God was specifically active at work in the life of the people. And that activity simply made them who they were. This was their identity. This is who they were because of what God had done for them. And the application for us is very simple. We need to be a people, if we're gonna be a people who are, who are proclaiming God's word, who are filled with God's joy, it's, it's ultimately rooted in our identity in who God has called us to be. Our identity is not bound up in our achievements and our accomplishments or in our special abilities, right? But rather our identity, when it's bound up in who God says that we are, what he has done for us, those are things that can never be taken away from us. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you will never be outside of Christ, that is who you are. That's who I am as a follower of Jesus. And that can never be taken away from us. It is a source for us as his people of constant joy. And we would, be, we would do well to ensure that, that our identity is found firmly in Jesus so that we can be a people who are constantly reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. Secondly, not just our identity, but also and God's working in the past. I'm gonna give you three. There's gonna be four reasons, four grounds for our joy. The first three I'm gonna go through kind of fast. And the fourth one we're gonna settle into. The second one is because of God's working in the past. Look at the first part of verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is what he has done. Why can they be a people who are filled with joy? Because of what God has done. He's taken away the judgments against them. He has cleared away their enemies. The prophet Zephaniah is encouraging God's people to look back and to consider what has God done for you? What has God done for you? What is one of the sources of their joy? It's reflecting back on God's activity in their life. How did he save them? How he purified 
them, how he delivered them from their enemies. Why should they be joyful? Because they can look back in their past and they should be able to identify places that God has been at work. And the result of that should be joy. Why else can they be joyful? Verse three, this is mentioned, the second reason is because of God's presence with them. It's mentioned twice in verses 15 through 17. It says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Once again in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. What reason do they have to be joyful? Simply put, God is with them. God is with them. Rather than being absent or distant like many of the gods of the days would have been by people around them, their God who was a God, their God was a God who simply was there. His presence was with them and it would inspire confidence in the people. The result, it says, not should they just be filled with joy that would cause them to burst forth in song, but they would also be a people who would not be afraid. Twice, fear not, O Zion. Fear not. Never again, fear evil. They should not be a people who cower in the corner, who are filled with fear. Now, now keep in mind, just about 50 years before this, the Assyrian army tried to take over Judah. King Hezekiah was on the throne at that time, tried to take over Judah. So in just a few years, this is uh, Zephaniah is a contemporary of, of Jeremiah. In just a few years, the Babylonian empire would come in and take them into captivity. So between the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians, these were people who are constantly living in fear. And God's word to them through the prophet of Zephaniah is, the Lord, the one, the mighty one who will save you, is in your midst. He's here. The result, don't be filled with fear. Enemies constantly knocking on the door, threatening to take them captive. But because God was with them, they should not fear. Folks, we're reminded of the same thing, that there is nothing, if we are in Christ, there is nothing in this world that can separate us from Christ. I'm reminded of Paul's words in the book of Romans chapter eight, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The, the story of Christmas, God coming to us, living among us, is a story of God building a people who can glide through this world, whatever comes into our life, with a certain sort of swagger, that nobody can stop. Whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's the loss of a job, financial uncertainty, whether it is people who mock and ridicule the message that we so, that we so proudly proclaim. God has called us because he is with us to be a people who don't live in fear, but who are filled with courage, confident as we stride through this world. Fourthly, what other reason do we have to rejoice, to be people who are filled with joy? Well, the final reason I want to just share with you this morning is found in verse 17. 
It says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What reason do you have this morning to sing with joy? I'll give you one. Because God, the creator of the universe, sings over you. He sings over you. Jesus says in the New Testament, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And here Zephaniah proclaims that when God gathers all these repentant, humble, broken sinners in his midst, what will he do with them? Will he look down at them in their filthy sin and simply cast them out of his presence? Will he look down on them in shame, complete disapproval, embarrassed at their filthy state? Will he look at us, you and me, in our sin and simply just look right over our heads to the next person who's maybe, I don't know, a little better? Is that what God will do? Not at all. We're told that he will rejoice over his people in song. He will exult over his people in loud singing. He will quiet us by his love. The image for me when I read this verse that comes to mind is the image of a baby, completely miserable. Maybe you've met one of them before. Unable to be comforted, crying, maybe in a filthy diaper, just filth all over him, a hot mess, being taken in the arms of a loving mother, held dear, close to her chest, as she simply sings a beautiful melody over her baby. And in doing so, the baby suddenly feels comfort, assurance, love. And as a result, the baby's cries grow quieter and quieter and quieter. And eventually, all you can hear is the beautiful melody of the mother singing. That's precisely the picture that we're given in Zephaniah chapter three of how God deals with you and with me. It's really a beautiful picture. I mean, can you even, there's really nowhere else in scripture where we see anything like this. This is remarkable. Let me give you an example. God did not sing when he made the universe. He did not sing when he called the mountains to spring up from the ground. God did not sing when the waters teemed with creatures. God did not sing when he hung the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. He he didn't sing to do that. We're told he simply spoke a word. He just spoke a word. Creation didn't make him sing. But when it comes to redeeming you and me, 
a lost, broken, sinful people. When it comes to saving us in our sin, we're told God bursts forth in song. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. Go real quick with me to Psalm 29. If you got your Bible open, you'll be helped. This is not in the notes. Psalm 29. And let's consider just for a moment the voice of God. This is what Psalm 29 says. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Consider the powerful voice of God Almighty. And this same voice, this same voice, which can cast out demons, which by speaking a word can still the waves and the wind. Consider this voice with with his last final breath cries out, it is finished. That voice sings over you and over me, over his children when they turn from their sin and run into his arms. He wraps his arms around them and he just sings. He just sings. This is surprising. Folks, it's remarkable. There really is nothing like it in all of Scripture. However, it should not completely surprise us because we know how much God loves us. The Bible tells us very clearly that he demonstrates his love for you and for me by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross in our place, to receive the the penalty for our sin, the judgment that you and I rightfully deserve. Jesus bears it. And in doing so, he demonstrates to you and to me how much he loves us. If you have received the gift of salvation, that only comes through Jesus Christ. God, the God of the universe, is singing over you. That is amazing. It's amazing. So what do we do about it? Well, let me give you two two things you can do. First is repent. Repent. Turn from your sins. There's there's some here today who have done that. There's some who have not. You know, if you go back and look at chapter three, go go to verse 20 real quick. It says, at that time, again, speaking of this day of the Lord, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, 
For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So God is gathering for himself a people where he lives in their midst, the people around him. It's like a city. It's not the first sort of image of a city that we get. We also see one earlier in chapter three, where verse one, where it says, woe to her, speaking specifically of Jerusalem, a city who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. From verse one, you have a city that's pictured like a city of rebellion. The Lord is in that city, yet the people of the city rebel against him, reject him. And in verse 20, we have another city. You have a Lord still in the presence. However, this is not a city of rebellion and sin, but rather it's a city of salvation. It's a picture of God living among his saved people, gathering them to himself. It's a wonderful chapter, a parallel we have in these two sort of bookends of the chapter. It's, it's a picture of two cities that are radically different. But in both city, guess what? God's presence is there. God is in their midst. God is in the city. It's the one thing that those two cities have in common. And at Christmas time, we remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He came to pay the penalty for sin and to bring judgment upon the world. He is the humble man who came to take away the guilt and the shame he is the one that brought blessing to the people of the earth who welcomed the presence of God into their lives. For the, the ultimate fulfillment of Zephaniah is not in Judah or Jerusalem today, but ultimately it's in Jesus, who by his death brought judgment and salvation at the same time to the world. So even when we say things like, God be with you, for some God's presence in their midst is a blessing. And I would think that most times when we say that, that's what we're trying to do, bless somebody. God be with you. But the reality is God's presence with people is not necessarily a blessing. Remember two sides to the coin. For those who have repented, who have turned from their sins and run to God, that's precisely what it is. God's blessing, God's presence is the blessing of joy in their life. But for those who have not repented from their sins, his presence, his presence should fill you with fear. So the practical application, first and foremost, is, yeah, we can sign up for like uh, four weeks of joy a year. You know, I know oftentimes that, that Christmas season, Advent season is like, hey, let's cheery music, bright colors, let's just be filled with joy for a, a month. And my, my recommendation to you is if that's how you approach this season, you are settling. There is something far greater that God offers you. Repent from your sins, trust in Jesus, and he will fill your life with endless joy. He will. Second application, repent is the first one. If you haven't done so, my goodness, would love the opportunity to just even meet with you this morning and, and help you just turn from your sin and embrace God. 
would love to talk with you this morning. Second application is to rejoice, to rejoice. Remember, God, as we examine this passage, is creating us into a people of eternal joy. What's been so What's been so helpful for me as I've considered this verse is that I've recognized that the joy of Christmas is not a one-sided deal. It's not. It's not simply God's people who rejoice because God has forgiven and restored them. It is that, but it's not just that. God's people sing. Why? Because God first sang over them. It's not simply God's people who rejoice. God too sings. And he shouts with joy over his love restored in his people. The divine heart overflows with jubilation. And the call this morning is to simply receive that love and join him in song. As we consider how much God delights in the redemption of, of us as his people, the necessary result should be that we burst forth in song. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much as we consider, um, Lord, really just what you have offered us um, life in your presence, the forgiveness of sins, a people filled with unending, eternal joy. Lord, we just give thanks. We just give thanks for that. Help us this time of year especially to consider um, your presence with us and among us. Lord, fill us, Lord, with joy as we reflect on what you have done for us, Lord, and how you sing over us. Lord, would your song Cause us to rejoice. Cause us to rejoice and to be filled with joy. We recognize this morning, Lord, that there are, there are troubles here that are real. There are those among us who walked in these doors this very day who feel defeated and just broken down. And Lord, we thank you that you offer us a joy that is not circumstantial or temporary. Lord, but that as we feel your arms wrapped around us and your voice singing over us, Lord, might it cause us to remember the joy that we have in you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're called church on a regular basis um, to remember uh, not just what God offers us, but also how it was achieved. And um, gives us the, the Lord's Supper as a, uh, a regular reminder of what it cost Jesus um, that we could experience his joy with him forever. And so I'd encourage you right now, if you have the elements, to go ahead and, and take it out. And I'm just going to guide us. This is specifically for, for those who, if you don't call Parkview your home, that's okay. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a meal that we share together as the body of Christ, in remembrance of what it costs Christ for us to be his people. And so go ahead and take out the bread, and I will um, guide us through this time. The Lord Jesus, 
on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, this is the body of Christ given for you. Let's take and eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you and me. Let's take and drink. Father God, we thank you this morning as we consider what it cost you to make us your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to never lose sight of um, your love and your great sacrifice. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be the people who treasure, Lord, the gospel of Jesus, who proclaim it, who walk in it, who live by it, Help us never to drift from it. Lord, help us to see ourselves as a people who are in desperate need of you and to see you as a God who never fails, never forgets us. We ask these things in your name, amen.